Hello, everyone, and either welcome or welcome back to the Agenda Libertarian Podcast. If you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page where you do get early access. Link will be down in the show notes. So today I'm talking to Stephanie Slade. She is the managing editor over at Reason Magazine, and she is also the author of the April 2020 cover piece for Reason, Against the New Nationalism, which is talking about this new kind of right-wing nationalist movement thingamajig that is coming up, and also referencing specifically Rich Lowry's book, The Case for Nationalism, which that's kind of where I want to start because that's where the piece starts. And this is a kind of a topic I've been covering for some time now. Um, I did an episode specifically on Against the Dead Consensus, which was an interesting little piece there, which basically my summation of that is, well, screw you too, guys. But even before that, even the Tucker Carlson monologue from last January, that kind of kicked off this whole movement, I guess, for lack of a better word, because I'm still a little confused about exactly what it is these people want. But like I said, I want to start with Lowry's book, because it seems like when he is using the word nationalism, he's creating this new definition for it that I think is a bit self-serving and a bit disingenuous. So go ahead and kind of explain how Lowry is like defining down nationalism. He basically in the book, he's trying to fight back against the idea that nationalism should be a dirty word. Um, And so he, he begins by sort of saying, by, by offering this, this definition where he basically says, well, nationalism is just basically another word for patriotism. It means you are, you love your country. You're proud of your country. You know, you feel a sense of loyalty to your homeland and that's all it is. And who could be against that? Um, I think this fails for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that when you start poking and prodding him on what that means, or when you read further into the book or listen to him speak, um, as he's been promoting the book, uh, you, you find, you come to find out pretty quickly that actually, you know, this is sort of a cover for, for something a lot deeper than that. He's sort of trying to smuggle in support for, um, a certain sort of policy orientation in, into, into, under that, under the cover of that word and, and this word that he, that he wants you to believe is just a synonym for love of country. Um, and more, even more importantly than that, whether or not Rich Lowry, um, intends this, uh, what he seems to be willfully, um, refusing to acknowledge is that there, there is a whole sort of movement of conservative nationalists. They threw an entire, um, major conference last summer here in Washington, DC, the National Conservatism Conference that attended by hundreds of people, including some very big name, um, right of center academics and journalists and, and a U.S. senator, um, and they have a quite clear and and profoundly illiberal policy agenda that involves like uh, massive uh, wealth redistribution, support for American industry, protectionism, um, exclusionary immigration policies, a much a much bigger, more um, metal meddlesome go- uh, federal government that tries to sort of reorient reorient the country back to its its judeo-christian roots and and reestablish a sort of the morality that that these these folks are in favor of i mean what they're talking about is a, an agenda that certainly by no definition could could be defined down to just like love of country yeah and i think that's really one of my first problems with this is i mean patriotism already has a name like we don't need to redefine nationalism as patriotism you could just say patriotism And nationalism has traditionally meant something 
a little more than just patriotism, not only as far as kind of economic policies and social policies, but also in relationship to a person's relationship to the country itself and to other citizens that I feel like they're promoting, but they're not really, it's kind of a weird thing where it's, you're wanting to say something, but you're not exactly wanting to come right out and say it. And that is that obviously under nationalism, and they do kind of somewhat touch on this, but there is more of this kind of idea that you owe something to your country and it owes something to you and you owe something to your fellow citizens. And I think that's where a lot of their policies are coming from, especially when you start talking about things like economic protectionism and how we need to have legislative morality and we need to have certain government offices to take care of manufacturing jobs or energy jobs or anything like that. It's that idea that this country owes you a specific thing because you were born in its interior. And that's really kind of scary to me, to be quite honest, as a libertarian. That kind of really freaks me out. Yeah, I think it's I think it's deeply um, anti-individualistic. And ultimately, when I try to understand what is it, what is it that this program has in common, that's the only thing that I can because ultimately, is there is there really something nationalist and nationalistic about the sort of Sorabamari against the consensus, um, trad Catholicism or socially conservative? The, the idea that we should seize that conservatives sh- should uh, seize the reins of power and use the government to make people behave in a moral way is that is that inherently nationalistic? Well. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I would say arguably not, but it's being lumped under nationalism um, when what I think it really is and what it has to do with all of these sort of economic nationalism is that it's a it's a, an insistence that um, individual freedom and, and, you know, individual rights be subordinated to the idea of the, the sort of national interest and the national will. And so if um, if you want to make a choice that that would not be in the collective interest, then that you shouldn't have the right to do that. That should be subordinated. It should be overridden by the nationalist imperative that, that the government, the federal government has to protect the, the common good or the national interest. I think their argument would be as far as like legislating morality, that you need to have some kind of cohesive moral structure that binds together all Americans, which, okay, Whose morality are you going to use here? And how exactly do you plan on enforcing this? Because you can't legislate morality. Like people are going to do what they're going to do. Like if that was even a thing that was remotely possible, it would have already worked in say like drug laws and prohibition would have worked and anything that the government tried to prohibit people from doing would have stuck. And obviously that doesn't work. So it it just strikes me as this very weird thing where it's like I said, it's like they want to say something, but they don't want to say it out loud, or at least not yet. But all of the examples that Lowry uses in his book all have these sorts of very violent ends. Like every time nationalism has been tried and like the real definition of nationalism, not Lowry's weird patriotism definition, always ends in violence. And even he has to admit that, whether it's just violence within the country itself, all the way up to starting a world war or two, but it always ends violently. So you would think that that would be like, dude, um, maybe this is not such a great idea after all. Yeah, I thought one of the strangest things about this book was the fact that he spent, he dedicated quite a large portion of it 
to walking through, you know, sort of his telling of world history and his telling of the idea of nationalism over time. He's trying to make the case that it goes way back. It's not a new concept. It's sort of an ancient idea going back hundreds of years. And it it sort of naturally occurs around the world. Anytime you have a a sort of coherent set of uh, people, a sort of, you know, a a people, a nationality, they're going to develop this this sort of nationalist sentiment. but almost in every single one of his ex- historical examples, I mean, time after time after time, in his own telling, the ends are bloody. I mean, it ends in in war and imperialism and in the French Revolution and the guillotine and in, um, you know, uh, the uh, American westward expansion, which he sort of he sort of half acknowledges involved some trampling on the rights of the native Americans, but <laughs> says little. like, you know, but you know, ultimately we wouldn't all, we wouldn't want to live in a world where we hadn't done that. So it's not that big of a deal. Um, and yeah, I just thought it was very strange that he, he spent so much of his book telling a history that I think any reasonable reader of that history would arrive at precisely the opposite conclusion from the one that he wanted them to arrive at, you know, <laughs> It seems to me, and I've not read his book yet, I think I'm going to have to pick it up and read it just for the sake of saying that I did it, but it seems to me like he's falling into kind of the same trap that democratic socialists or outright socialists or communists make when they try to make the argument that, okay, if we do it this time, it won't go as far as it did the last couple of times. Like, it won't, we can do socialism without it turning into Stalinism, which Obviously, history proves that, no, you really can't. But it's like that, it's that way of thinking that, like, you can stop the train before it completely goes off the track. And historically speaking, nobody has been able to do that. So it's kind of that same, I don't know if I would definitely want to call it utopianism, but that same kind of, like, rose-colored glassism that's saying, like, oh, well, we can just do just a little bit of it, and it won't get crazy like it did the last couple of times. Like, it won't be Hitler. It'll be, like something nicer and gentler and kinder. Yeah. And I, there's a couple of ways that things can go wrong that historically, you know, according to the, again, the historical telling of people like Lowry, thing, the nationalism can go wrong. Uh, and, and he would say, well, it goes wrong when it's tainted by malign influences. Um, and the question is, you know, well, is it ever not? But uh, one way it goes wrong is through bloodshed, through war and imperialism and, and that sort of thing. Um, another way is through a sort of uh, obsession that can develop within the homeland of, of, uh, cultural or ethnic or religious purity. We must, we must uh, maintain our purity by keeping out outsiders or um, by forcing them to assimilate to our way of life. And um, I think that that is the one that is actually more relevant to the nationalist movement that we're seeing today. Now, of course, m- most people who are self-describing as American nationalists would deny it. But if you listen to them and listen to the way they talk about the importance of the American culture and how it's under attack and how we must secure our borders and how you know it, it's like uh, it, it seems a little like they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. Um, and it's 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 maybe not full on blood and soil nationalism, but it's it, I mean, it's da- I think it's dangerous. I think it, it runs the risk of of decaying in that way. Absolutely. And this is another one of those where. You're trying to say something without actually saying it, because when they invoke American culture, I don't understand what they mean by that. Like, what is American culture and why do you think it is under attack from immigrants? And is it so weak that the immigrants are going to come and take it over? Like, I'm just 
I'm baffled by the concept because the things that I would consider American culture would be things like multiculturalism, multi-ethnicities, multi-religion, kind of the more individualistic enlightenment sort of values that the country was founded on, but they seem to be inherently against those ideas. So I'm not understanding when they say they want to preserve the culture. I'm like, what culture are you wanting to preserve? Like, I don't understand the concept or what this part of the project is supposed to be about. Right. I think the things that that most people would agree make America exceptional or unique, the things that make our culture what it is and make it great and make it worth being proud of and, you know, us feeling that sort of emotional attachment to our homeland are liberal values. They're, they're, they're the fact that we are this open and tolerant and adventure seeking and, um, you know, success driven. And we are uh, a big belief. We are sort of stubborn, stubbornly committed to individual freedom and to um, resisting government, overreaching government, um, sort of just tyranny. I love this quote from H.G. Wells that all Americans are, from the English point of view, liberals of one sort or another. And this idea that we are all so committed to individual liberty that even the conservatives are basically liberals from a European perspective. Uh, Hayek also um, famously in his his uh, essay, Why I'm Not a Conservative, made the same point. He said, you know, what in Europe was called liberalism was here the common tradition that the conservatives were essentially trying to conserve. We're all liberals here. Um, and so when you start talking about what is it, what is that culture and what do we need to protect it from, it's like, honestly, at this point, I feel like what I, what the American culture and American exceptionalism uh, needs protecting from are people like the nationalists who want to change, to change the thing that has always made us great. Yeah, it's like you're not trying to preserve what most people would consider to be American culture. You're trying to reshape it into this image that you have of I'm not even quite sure where they get this but it kind of like I I look at it the same way I look at the whole slogan make America great again I'm like okay so you're saying it's not great now so you want to take it back to some defined point in time in the past but can you please tell me what point in time in the past that you want to take it to so we can try to explain to you how things weren't all that great back then either but it's like this this very nebulous concept that everybody within the movement seems to just be like, yeah, that, but anybody outside is like, well, what, what are you talking about? Like, what, what is it that you want? But to kind of bring it back to the piece a bit, um, a thing that Lowry also seems to do in the book is that he seems to just kind of gloss over our nationalist in chief who does self-identify as a nationalist, Donald Trump, and by kind of hand-waving him away by saying, oh, it's not that either. It's not being an ass on Twitter and doing all this other stuff. It's not that. But, I mean, you can't ignore the fact that Trump identifies himself as a nationalist. And so you would have to assume that, I mean, you you can't ignore him, I wouldn't think. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, in fairness, I don't think that Donald Trump is a principled nationalist because I don't think he's a principle of anything. Like his, I think his sort of driving, his driving motivation is not actually America first, it's Donald Trump first. Um, but he has chosen this word. Uh, he's chosen to embrace it. I mean, he he sort of made, made a splash in just before the 2018 midterms by going to a rally and saying, they they say nationalist is a dirty word, but you know what? I'm a nationalist. We should all be nationalists. Use that word. 
Um, and so the idea that uh, we shouldn't, it's, it's somehow out of bounds to look at what he means by that. And what has he done? What is his record? Um, in what ways does he, does he seem to think that that word captures what he's all about? I, I don't see how it could be out of bounds for us to look at that as we're trying to answer the question of what is this nationalism that is being proposed, especially because it is such a difficult word to define. And there's so much disagreement among the, the even this conservative nationalist, the people who are Americans on the sort of American right who call themselves nationalists, they don't even all agree about the definition of that word. So as we're trying to get a sense of whether it's a good thing or, or a bad thing or how dangerous is it, we have to look at what are they actually calling for? What policies and sort of, you know, what are they in favor of? And what, what is the, what is this, this powerful guy um, who has chosen to embrace the word and seems to, seems to have, um, seems to have a, a sort of built, at the very least, whether he has a following for the nationalism, he has he has sort of the toler the toleration or the support of the American right behind the things he's doing. Um, so so what is he doing? What does the word mean in practice? What does it mean in theory? What are they calling for? And what does it mean in practice? What is happening right now with this self proclaimed nationalist in the White House? And I think the answer is some pretty nasty things. I mean, he's famously gotten gotten uh, a lot of heat and i think rightly so for saying that a um a judge of muslim of uh, of mexican heritage shouldn't get to rule in one of his cases because he would you know because he would be biased or telling these um telling these democratic congresswomen who um are not white that they should go back to where they're from um you know you can see what when i talk about how the word nationalism i worry that it can decay into a sense of uh, uh, an obsession with purity, like whether cultural or ethnic or religious, an obsession with purity and, um, you know, not allowing our, our homo- homogeneity of our cult- culture to be, um, t- you know, to be sort of uh, diluted in some way. Um, this He's not doing much to make me feel good about the likelihood that that can be prevented. I think maybe people like Trump and maybe some other conservatives are adopting Lowry's definition of the term nationalism, which is not correct. I mean, it's fine to say you're patriotic and there is a huge difference between being patriotic and being a nationalist. But there is that strain that you brought up of very kind of racist undertones, to be completely frank, in nationalism. And it's not just here. I mean, you can also see it in India you can see it kind of more in Turkey and some of the more European countries that have gone far right. And they do start having this internal obsession with purity. And do you really belong here? Like how far back can you trace your ancestors? I mean, they're actually doing that in India. And this idea of us versus them and insiders versus outsiders and othering people. And it always seems to end that way with nationalism. And I can see that kind of coming through in Lowry's strain of nationalism, too, where you have this idea of, like, taking away birthright citizenship or making people somehow prove that you're a real American, which I don't I don't even know how you would begin to do that. But somehow there's some kind of American purity test to prove that your ancestors were here for this long or you're this patriotic or you've done this thing or that thing. And it's like you guys realize that's really creepy and gross, right? Like that's, that's blood and soil nationalism straight up. Like you can't really deny that. Right. Right. I mean, I think 
that Lowry would deny that he fits into that category. And I, it's hard. It's actually hard to know exactly. Um, I, I, I try not to, in my piece, accuse him of being that sort of nationalist, but he is very um, almost studious about refusing to admit that there's any particular policy agenda that fits under that that would fall under or be required by his conception of nationalism. He says basically nationalism can be whatever you want when it comes to policy, as long as you love your country. Um, and and but the, and then he does actually back down later in the book and say, well, okay, but we need obviously to close our borders. <laughs> but um, so I don't want to ascribe the worst, uh, most noxious uh, blood and soil views to him. I think that I can't do that because he hasn't told us what he's really in favor of, and I, I'm sure that he would deny it. And I don't, I just don't want to be somebody who who makes an assumption like that. But I do think that the nationalist sort of moment that we are in it, it it can veer into that territory even people who are sort of the more respectable and um more um well-intentioned quote quote nationalists uh they they sometimes start seem like they're starting to lean or veer in that direction yeah and i noticed it especially with like the birthright citizenship argument and i've asked this several times and i've never gotten a decent answer, which is that if you get rid of birthright citizenship, then what do you replace it with? Like the whole reason we did birthright citizenship, because that's pretty much the easiest way to determine if you're an American. Like if you're born in America, you're an American, congratulations. And just irrespective of where your parents came from or your grandparents or anything like that. And that always seemed to me just the easiest way to handle it. But you are starting to see this kind of movement of people wanting to get away from that because of immigration, which is really like the one thing that it seems to me the nationalist movement has really super concrete policy ideas on that I obviously vastly disagree with. But it's this very kind of, again, this idea that, well, we have borders and we're a sovereign nation and we get to control who comes in and out. It's like, okay, yeah, cool. But what you're wanting to do is close the borders and that's kind of not cool either. So it's like, It almost seems like anti-immigration is the core of the movement and everything else kind of circulates around that. And I try my absolute best to engage people in good faith on the topic of immigration because on the off chance that the person I'm talking to might have anti-immigration views that are not based in some of the more vile and ugly instincts, shall we say, but... A lot of what's coming out of this just seems very, just not those people. Like, us people, we're fine, but those people, they can't come here. And it's like, well, why not? And then it goes back to that whole argument about the culture. And it's like, okay, well, what does that mean? And then it ends up in this circular argument. So, yeah, just it's it seems to me at, at the core just an anti-immigration movement. I, I think that's a big part of it. I, I also think um, economic protectionism and um again a major theme at the national conservatism conference last summer was how we need uh to have an industrial policy by which they meant massive ex- you know taxpayer expenditures at the federal level to prop up and support american industry so that we can so that our businesses and our uh pr- producers and manufacturers can outcompete foreign companies and um, like investment and uh, in infrastructure and in R and D and um, just like we we just need to spend a lot of money because otherwise 
we might lose. We might we might lose that our competitors might beat us. Our foreign competitors might beat us. So I think that that is another big part of this. Um, that that at least. Because I think also it's easier for them to talk about that without being accused of 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 being racist. Whereas when they start talking about immigration restrictionism, even though they they are clearly and openly in favor of um, you know restrictionism, uh, then they 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 know that they are sort of becoming vulnerable to to that critique. So I I think I think the industrial policy and and immigration go together or sort of a movement away from free markets and free trade and also um, a doubling down on a sort of skepticism of foreigners. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to deny the fact that there is something that they are reacting to, which is to say that there has been a movement on the left, the political left in recent years and recent decades to do some pretty ugly things and pretty collectivist things and illiberal things and use the government power in pretty inappropriate ways. Um, and to also sort of arguably um, undermine our sort of cultural cohesion. So, for example, um, the idea of identity politics sort of dividing, it's very divisive, right? It divides us into identity subgroups and breaks down our sense of like common purpose as Americans. They're not imagining that the nationalists, when they, when they say, when they say, we feel like the, um, the sort of American culture is under attack. I actually, I'm not. I don't think they're necessarily wrong. I just a, I question their their sort of pre- prescribed re- uh, response to it. Their the things they want to do that they think are going to fix it. And b, I also don't really see much evidence that like immigrants are the problem. If anything, it seems to be sort of bougie upper middle class, like highly educated white people who who are are the driving force behind many of these these things that you see like on college campuses, for example. And that is a good point that there is kind of that cognitive dissonance between what what it is that you're wanting to fight. And like, like you said, a lot of this kind of stuff from the left is coming from the upper class out of academia, but your problem is with immigrants. And so it's like, well, these people, depending on what you view the problem is, is which group of these people are your problem. And so that's that's another reason it's like this weird like I said, I'm just I'm not understanding what it is these people want, but to kind of cycle back to the points about the economy and economic protectionism, I wonder what would happen if you pointed out to these people that what they are proposing is central planning and whether they would try to figure out a way to define themselves out of that, because if that's what you're wanting, if you're wanting the government to take taxpayer money and funnel it into industries and to basically support certain industries, then yes, you're engaging in central planning. And I I wonder if they've ever really grappled with that because I'm sure they also think that socialism is the devil, which, well, some of them probably think that, although I would imagine some of them probably don't actually. They probably look at some of the tenets of communism or of socialism and are like, you know what? That actually sounded like a good idea. Maybe we should pursue that. Yeah, that's the most, I think, really astounding and surprising part of this development is um, the ways in which like, the far left and the far right have gone so completely crazy that they're starting to sort of circle around and come back together again. Um, and so the, the, the like, obvious example, the most vivid example of this is going to be Tucker Carlson like basically endorsing Elizabeth Warren's 
um, economic policies, right, on the air. Um, but but I think there are lots of examples of this. Now, neither side, I think, is going to openly admit to wanting to, like, nationalize all industries. I, I don't think anybody really likes the term central planning. Um, but, yeah, I mean, what they're doing is certainly moving in that direction. And some of them are pretty explicit that – so at the conference last summer, you had Yoram Hazani, who was one of the organizers, who got up on stage to sort of welcome everybody. And he said – um, today we declare our independence from classical liberalism. Uh, he's not hiding it, you know. They're not. Uh, some of them are not afraid to admit that they're. They have essentially rejected. They believe we tried li- classical liberalism. We tried liberal values. We tried enlight- enlightenment values. That sort of thing. Um, we tried a sort of libertarian economic outlook um, that that supports free markets and free trade, and um, and we think it failed. And so we're going to try something else now. <laughs> Yeah, and there was a brief moment in time there where they were calling themselves post-liberals, although I think they've moved on to national conservative now or whatever they want to call themselves this week. The name's changed so many times since this whole movement started. But yeah, even now that I think about it, even under the idea of like legislating morality, you would be having the government legislate culture, which was also a big part of communism with like the government saying like, okay, this is the culture and now you have to go to this parade or you have to stand up for this song and then you have to do this and that and it seems like they would be okay with that too like if they if they could pass a law making everybody have to stand for the national anthem they would probably do it which is a little frightening and is definitely against the first amendment but they don't seem to very much care about the constitution which is a little frightening because a lot of the things that they're proposing, it's just like you're going to run up on constitutional issues. And do you not see that and understand that? And what would be your way around that? Like I said, they're just, to me, there's not a lot of substantial policy positions coming out of this movement outside of immigration. And so that that's another thing that kind of squicks me out because it's like, okay, you have this list of problems that you have identified as problems, but I'm not seeing you point blank advocate for the solutions that you want. And that's making me wonder, do you not have them or do you just not want to say them out loud? Yeah, yeah, I definitely think that's true with some of the more, quote, liberal national conservatives. So like Rich Lowry and and some others that I quote in my piece, um, they're definitely trying to walk a fine line where they say, well, we're nationalists, but we're not the bad kind of nationalists (laughs) and we're not illiberal or post-liberal even. Um, whereas some others are, are pretty openly saying, you know, liberalism failed, we should try something else. Um, and at least the, the second group has sort of the, the courage of its convictions. I mean, I think they're very wrong, dangerously wrong. Um, but the, the first group, I think, is a little bit delusional <laughs> to think yeah. that, that you can somehow have it both ways. Um, ultimately, I'm more worried, I guess, about the ones who, who are openly rejecting these um, principles and norms, um, because I think we are, oh my gosh, we are, if, if we're nothing, if we're not a, a sort of country under the rule of law, a country that believes that like the government exists to work for us, the people and not the other way around. If we're not a country where like the, the leader, the president um, is, is under, um, you know, that he's not above the law, he's, he's under the law, it applies to him too. Um, if we're not a country that sort of generally has a, a high degree of, of respect for individual rights and and personal liberty, then I just don't know what we are. (laughs) I don't know what we are anymore at that point. 
Yeah, that's actually a good segue to another thing that Lowry seems to bring up, and that comes up in the national conservatism movement, and that is the role of government and what they think it should be doing. Obviously, they think it should be much larger than either you or I would ever, ever, ever be comfortable with. But they seem to think that the government should be promoting the quote unquote national interest, which again, what is the national interest? Like, can somebody please define this for me? Because I'm not quite understanding what, what do you want here? Like, what is that? Yeah, uh, that is a problem, especially because it, it runs into issues, issues of, of democracy also. Like, if a majority of Americans say, hey, we consider ourselves to be an open and tolerant and pluralist and diverse society, and we like um, you know, having new people come here from other parts of the world and having our culture sort of, um, you know, be influenced by, but also assimilate um, them into what, what, you know, what it was to begin with. Um, and, and so we're in favor of more immigration and we're in favor of taking in refugees. And we are, you know, we, we also are all about trade and openness and think it's great that global free trade, for example, is lifting millions upon millions of people out of abject poverty in the third world. Um, and so let's keep it up. It, it, the nationalists have to say, nope, you're wrong. The national interest, there's a sort of national the nationalist imperative that says, um, if there's any harm done to Americans by any of these things, as we define, as we define it, of course, and as we have decided to measure it, then uh, we can overrule your wishes, the sort of democratic wishes of the people, um, and, and sort of insist on diff- different policies. I think that's a big part of this, too. Yeah, and I, I don't think that's going to go over so well. And I think that's why you're not seeing a lot of concrete policy proposals coming out of this movement is because they know the minute that you start really getting down to nuts and bolts, like, okay, what are we going to do? What's the plan? Who's going to enforce this? How's this going to work? People are going to be like, have you lost your damn mind? Like, that's not that's not remotely possible in this country for various and assorted reasons. And so it's just like, I, I don't know what to make of this movement. I, It's gaining popularity, but it's like, I, I kind of draw a lot of parallels to kind of what's going on with the democratic socialist movement, where you can get support by saying nice things and it sounds nice in people's ears. But once you start getting down to policy, all of a sudden people are like, okay, no, not, not that. Like, that's crazy. I don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Especially when you start talking about the costs associated with those policies. Yeah. And then obviously under whatever it is that nationalists want, there is going to be a cost because obviously you're going to have to have more government to make it happen. You're going to have to have government to enforce it to happen. And especially if you're talking about things in more of a cultural realm, you're walking into some very, very bad areas where how exactly are you going to enforce morality or how are you going to enforce cultural cohesion? That's when you start getting into totalitarianism. And that's, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that the sort of inability of Sora Bamari, who was, of course, one of the signatories of the Against the Dead Consensus letter, and then wrote a follow-up piece for First Things, um, which he attacked National Review writer David French. And he said that we need to, again, we need to sort of seize control of government and use it to reorient society toward the common good and toward the highest good. 
um, when when he was asked, well, okay, what does that mean in practice? He he like he kind of he just he shied away from answering, and, and he specifically raised the example of Drag Queen Story Hour. Um, I don't know if you talked about this on your podcast. This you know this is like a, yeah. a small movement uh, that sometimes these events are held at public libraries where. Uh, a drag queen will read a children's book to a group of, of kids who are brought there by their parents voluntarily. Of course, that's an important part of this. Um, and when, when Amari was asked, well, okay, you're, you're very upset about the existence of these events. What exactly would you do about it? He didn't have an answer because the, the real, the real thing I think in deep down in their hearts that they want to be able to do is say, I want to ban them from existing at all. I want to keep them out of the public square. I want to silence and censor them. But they know they can't say that. No, I mean, that's that's crazy, right? So instead, instead they say, well, I don't know. I just think that we should probably, Josh Hawley should hold a Senate hearing and we should, you know, talk about it some more. And, and um, you know, it's it, political theater, it's intimidation, um, but it's sort of soft tyranny instead of hard tyranny um, because they know that they that they sort of can't defend the the hard tyranny that I think a lot of them really wish they could do. Yeah, the whole David Frenchism episode was quite amusing just because David French is such a nice guy and he was just so confused by how he ended up dragged into this. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, wait, what? What is I'm I'm a movement now? <laughs> but yeah, the whole drag queen story hour thing was just ridiculous, but it does help to illustrate that like, okay, well, you have these grievances, but how exactly under your system, would this be addressed? And there's no other way other than totalitarianism. But like you said, you can't say that because that's when everybody is going to like leave the room, metaphorically speaking, and be like, now these people are nuts. Yeah. Now, on economic policy, I think they're actually more willing to speak openly. Uh, I mean, whereas a few years, just a few years ago, the Republican Party was squarely in the camp that supported free trade. Um, now Republicans have sort of lined up, whether reluctantly or not, they've lined up behind the Trump trade war, the tariffs, the idea that it's a sort of, I describe it in the piece as a mercantilist outlook, the idea that we, the government should be trying to protect American, you know, again, manufacturers and, and businesses. Um, and so they're pretty openly, they're pretty openly supporting, um, all the, all this sort of industrial policy and protectionism that we were talking about earlier. Um, without, without, I think, grappling with the fact that in reality, there are costs to Americans from those policies as well. I mean, one obvious one is the cost of goods and services to consumers is going up. Um, but last night at Reason, at our DC office, we actually had an event um, in which we heard from some small business owners. We heard from the CEO of Flying Dog Brewery, which is an American, um, you know, beer pr- uh, manufacturer here in, um, they're actually in Maryland, so not too far from DC. And he was talking about how the steel and aluminum tariffs has disproportionately hurt, hurt craft brewers. They need they need steel and aluminum for their cans, for their equipment, for their kegs, right? So they're being hurt by the by the aluminum and steel tariffs. And we also heard from a woman, a young woman who who um, owns a wine and cheese shop, and she was talking about how um, retaliatory tariffs from the EU and from uh, and from other countries and other parts of the world on wine and cheese are really hurting her bottom line. She's I mean, these are the people that are ostensibly protected by these, quote, protectionist economic policies, and they're actually harming Americans. Yeah, and especially, um, especially, I've I've seen, especially the stuff coming out of France, like the wine and cheese, the tariffs on that are nuts now. 
But it's like you try to explain to people, especially on the topic of tariffs, it's like, okay, if you just tariff this one thing, like, okay, shit rolls downhill. Like, if you put a tariff on aluminum, well, now things made out of aluminum are going to cost more money. And it just affects the supply chain all the way down to where once you get to buying the thing at the store, it's going to be more expensive and you are going to be the one to pay for those tariffs. Like, China's not eating the tariffs. Manufacturers are not eating the tariffs because businesses don't eat taxes. They pass them along to consumers. Everybody, I thought, knew that. But apparently we have to have that basic economic lesson again. Well, and- even if, and if they are absorbing, the, if they are sort of eating those co- those costs, those cost increases, what it, it still, it's not like if you could just absorb, absorb them and they have no effect, then you have less money left over for innovation and expansion of your business. So there's always, always second order consequences. And they always are those that affect the economy and consumers and uh, workers and, you know, all the other interrelated aspects of the economy in various ways. There, there's no free lunch. <laughs> yeah. And to me, the economic protectionists have this very simplistic view of economics that doesn't take reality into effect and how... The butterfly effect is real when it comes to supply chains and stuff like that. And when you do this one little thing, it's going to impact somebody else massively. And like, okay, say you say flying dog has to pay more for their cans. Okay, well, now maybe that's money that's not going to be spent on hiring new employees. So now you're, you're keeping somebody out of a job or somebody's not getting a raise or maybe we're not increasing production. Like it, it affects everybody downstream in a way that I've not seen any of them actually really grapple with. Right, exactly. But kind of moving on from that, um, and and kind of a way to wrap this up, since to kind of bring it back to us, um, they definitely have some views on libertarians. <laughs> <laughs> they don't like us too much. In fact, apparently we are just the root of all evil because we've ruined all the things when we were in power, which I don't, when was that exactly? I know, blinked and we missed it. I don't know. Was it at like between 2 and 4 a.m. on a Tuesday night when we were all asleep? I was just like, wait a minute, when did we ruin everything? We never ran anything. I thought that was the whole point is you guys made fun of us because we never run anything. But yeah, we've kind of become the punching bag and that's the part that kind of amuses me but probably should amuse me a lot less because it means there's a lot of people who don't really understand what libertarianism is but it seems like once again it's our turn to be the punching bag for the conservative movement and how libertarians have ruined all the things yeah (laughs) and it's apparently our fault for drag queen story hour and all of the economic policies and porn too apparently that's we we did that too i guess which (laughs) Which that seems to be kind of like their biggest cultural front right now is the war on porn. And I'm just like, are we doing this again? Didn't we do this like twice already? Like, can we please stop? <laughs> nothing new, nothing new in history. Ugh. Apparently not. But it's it's just so weird. Like, I don't know. I just I cannot pin down what exactly these people want, because I think... Ultimately, they are being deliberately dodgy about some of it, because like I said, some of this stuff you can't really say out loud. It's just kind of one of those wink, wink, nudge, nudge things. And so, yeah, I really don't know what to make of them as a movement. But the one thing that does 
kind of make me very sad and very frightened is if the right starts to go in this sort of nationalist way, then it's just going to be libertarians left out here advocating for free trade and open markets and individualism and freedom of expression, because obviously that's fallen away on the left too, especially when he had people like Elizabeth Warren, who was dropped out, but Bernie Sanders, who was still very much in the race, who kind of espoused these same principles, maybe not on the cultural perspective, but on the economic perspective that we do need economic protectionism and we need tariffs and we need to figure out a way to bring the jobs back from China and all of this other stuff. And it's, I I feel like we're about to be in a very lonely place and that scares me. Yeah. I mean, that's true. My one sort of the, the, my one like ray of hope is that I'm wondering if as both the far left and the far right just lose lose their damn minds and continue to move so far out into the extremes that again, I start to feel like they uh, at some point become almost indistinguishable from each other. Um, do we start looking like the the sane moderates, <laughs> which is like a new thing for us, where we've always been the the radicals and the the you know fringe um, libertarians, the the crazy folks. But compared to what's happening on both left and right right now, I mean, maybe we start to look pretty good as a, as an alternative. I've made that argument before to somewhat interesting response, but yeah, it's kind of becoming the point where we. If you look at the political spectrum, and it, even if you want to look at it as like political horseshoe, which I thoroughly believe in, and I'm starting to believe more that it might be a, just a damn circle at this point, but we would be, in comparison to where the right is and where the left is, we would kind of be at the top of the horseshoe now, which is weird. Like, we're usually the fringe people, and it's like, when did we become the not crazies? Yeah. I mean, when, when, when the people who look sanest in your political system are the ones who think we should like legalize heroin and put it in vending machines, you really got to ask yourself, what has happened to both the left and the right? Like, oh my God. Yeah. If both of those, it just, if both of those just fell off a cliff, if the current iterations of the right and the left fell off a cliff and it just left the libertarians and the neoliberals, I would be okay with that. <laughs> Same. But yeah, it's just, I I don't know what to make of this current moment other than I'm not going to like it. <laughs> no matter who wins this year, I'm not going to like it. I've already resigned myself to that. It's not going to get any better or easier for libertarians, at least not in the short run. Maybe, hopefully, in the long term, if both sides go crazy enough, people might start being like, hey, the libertarians, let's give them a shot. Well, I'm hopeful that... You know, again, another thing that makes me hopeful, not necessarily optimistic, but at least a little bit hopeful, is that I do think the left, the sort of socialist moment on the left has, they've gotten out in front of their skis a little bit. I think your average, even your average average Democratic voter is not a socialist. They don't like that word. They're not, they're pretty nervous about the idea of the party going all the way out in that direction. So I don't, I, I, I kind of think that, that like, yeah, I mean, Bernie's had some, some surprising success. That's true. But I, I think there's probably going to be a correction as the party comes back to uh, back to where the center of gravity of the Democratic Party is. And I'm hopeful that post-Trump, something similar will happen on the right where um, people sort of wake up from this fever dream and remember that there was a reason we supported like free trade, for example. There's a re- like we learned these lessons and, um, and, and this was a sort of momentary flirtation with insanity, but it's time to come back to the principles that we that we know are right. 
I sincerely hope so, because there's a lot of people right now who are feeling very, very alienated from both parties because of kind of the current insanity going on. And I hope that maybe at some point somebody regains some level of sanity. But if not, at least we'll be here to try to hoover up those people and then maybe... Maybe we can make some more libertarians. Hopefully, yeah, maybe. I hope so. <laughs> that would be nice. All right. Well, at this point, I think we've gone on long enough, so we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. So go ahead and plug anything that you want to plug. Obviously, people already know where to find you, but go ahead. Yeah, sure. I mean, I hope that people will definitely follow and engage with me on Twitter at SladeSR. Um, check out the new issue of Reason. It's the April 2020 issue of Reason with my cover story against the new nationalism. Um, I'm around. I'm I'm excited to to hear what people think. If you think that I'm totally crazy and I'm getting it wrong and there is a way to make nationalism be compatible with classical liberalism, like I would definitely love to hear it. All right. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with me, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. So that was my conversation with Stephanie about her Reason piece that will be the cover piece for the April 2020 issue. I will put a link down in the show notes to the piece if you want to read it yourself or if you do already have a digital subscription or would like to pick up a copy. And as always, if you did make it this far, thank you for listening. And if you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. Take care and until next time.